Superbrain is a labour of love. Alas, no podcast can survive on love alone. We don't have a sponsor, so we need your support for Superbrain to stay alive and kicking. You can make a one-off donation by following the Support This Show link in the show or episode description. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, you're very welcome to the first ever episode of Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. My name is Sabina Brennan. I'm a neuroscientist, psychologist and author of the number one bestseller, A Hundred Days to a Younger Brain. I'm so pleased that you've decided to tune in. You're in for a treat because this week I chat to Irish Times columnist, playwright and author Hilary Fannin. Hilary and I had never met before recording today's episode. I contacted her by email to invite her to be a Superbrain guest. We then spoke on the phone. Uh, I think Hilary wanted to make sure that I wasn't some sort of crazy woman. Anyway, we got on like a house on fire and could have talked for hours, but we decided to cut our phone conversation short so that we could share our first chat with you. I have to tell you that Hilary is my kind of super brain. From the age of four and throughout her childhood, she was branded as a stupid, yes, stupid and weak child and ultimately ended up being expelled from school at the ripe old age of 11. Despite this, Hilary found her super brain and is now an award-winning columnist, an accomplished playwright and most recently an author. Hilary even fulfilled her dream of going to university in her mid-50s. In this episode, we talk about her belligerent resilience, her road to writing success, acting, creativity, motherhood, life in general and making work happen. I hope you enjoy today's show. Yeah, I mean, there's one thing that I'd really like to talk to you about, and and that's actually about going to university in your 50s. You kind of beat me. I went to university in my 40s and kind of felt that that was something really uh, unusual to do. Um, But there's a few things you actually wrote about that in in one of your articles in the Irish Times. And a couple of things that jumped out to me about that was, um, you know, that you often talk to people about your own journey and part of that journey being going to university in your 50s and that you hear a lot of stories of loss often from women? I mean, for me, I never went to college. I left school in 1979. Um, I'm 57 now, I'm going to be 58 in May. And so I left school in 79. And I mean, I don't know the exact percentages, but I think a very small percentage of girls from my convent school actually went to university. A lot of women went into nursing or teaching. And, you know, there were different ways into the profession, those professions at that time. For me... I didn't do any of those things. I was waitressing and stuff. And for my whole life, I had that sensation of missing something. I had was missing some component, um, which was time, I think. Just time to be able to read and to think and to be, um, to have some kind of freedom, you know. But, but I think I was idealising a student life or a student experience I remember when I met my husband when I was in my 30s and you know talking to him about his university life and you know he just you know sleep on the beach and read books and stuff like that and I just and I thought you know and I was working in childcare and I was working in sluice rooms and you know kitchens and stuff and I had that sensation of really wanting something so when I went to university 
for me, it was really um, mind-blowing. It was wonderful. Subsequently, and we can come back to that, but I'm, I've met... I, I'm a chatter, you know, I chat to people. Mm-hmm. And I meet women of my age, and a lot of them who, like me, came out of school in the late 70s, when there was no free education for a start, when the expectations, I think, for young women was quite different than it is now. And certainly in the common school I went to, there was kind of a sense that um, we were cooked. You know, we were ready to go out and get married. And, you know, our lives are not static. And and that sense of loss that I experienced, I've heard reflected back to me from other women of my age who maybe never fulfilled fulfilled their potential. Mm -hmm. Um, Women who maybe... I, I know I have this odd thing of having several friends who work um, as secretaries to doctors mm. and in and as hospital uh, secretaries in clinics. And every one of them would have made a brilliant clinician. Mm-hmm. Um, but something, I don't think their ambition was, I don't think our ambitions were heard. I don't think we were fostered. I don't think we were held in the ways we should have been. I think, um, I mean, it it resonates totally with me. Uh, um, For those listening, um, I left school in 1979. I'll be 57. (laughs) I love the expression that you've just said, that we're cooked. Now, I actually did my leaving. You would have just turned 17 before the exams. Just, yeah. I turned 17 after the exams. So technically, I left school at 16. Yeah. And we're supposedly fully cooked. I had no idea who I was. Um, like you, you know, and I think we were just saying before we, we started recording that that um, uh, uh, both of us, you know, when we did our leaving search, um, you know, there was nobody even asking you what your exams were yeah. or what you had to study for. Yeah. And I, I think my parents went on holidays, delighted that yeah. now I was old enough to be in the house um, with, yeah, yeah. With, with, without them there. And, and they were away when I got my leave and cert results. I think they were yeah. in the Isle of Man and I waited for them to call to tell them what I got like <laughs> and it was oh great and there was no sense of yeah. university I, I don't know if you recall like it was if you could get a job as a as a, as a woman um, I mean a lot of the girls in my class would have been encouraged to uh, leave after the um, inter cert which is what it was called then the now the junior cert um, to go to commercial college which mm. was to learn how to type because mm. that was a great job for mm. women mm. Um uh, some of us, um, and, and there was lots, as you say, really, really smart women um, or girls as we were then. Um, but I think I could, I could, I'd say, I know of three, four, five, maybe out of our entire year who went to university. Exactly. And, and, and generally they were the daughters of professionals. Yeah, absolutely. Whose, whose parents were already. We had um, our 40 year school reunion. Was it 40 years? Yeah, we had ours in October too. <laughs> yeah, October, yeah. <laughs> and um, it was really interesting, you know, and I, I kind of wrote about that as well. But it, we know in the end, you know, I was one of the last to leave, as usual. I'm kind of sitting around talking about our lives and the kind of lives that we experienced. And just like that, it was the, you know, the, the doctor's daughter um, went to UCD and did languages. Um, and, but it, there was a tiny percentage of us who had gone on to third level. Uh, tiny. Have, have you found now, I have noticed more and more of my peers have actually 
gone to university now yeah. that our kids have grown up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And and that's wonderful to yeah. see. And pursued and, and pursued education, you know, maybe not so formally, uh, you know, in terms of going into college, but have, you know, have continued to evolve and continue to make new um, tracks for themselves, you know, um, and a lot. And it is exactly that freedom that you talked about. I mean, for me, the the impetus what finally made me go to university was I uh, was a kind of a couple of things happened. My mother had been really ill for about 18 months and my son was like, I don't know, 15, 16. My youngest son was 15 or 16. My mother was really ill. I was working. I was kind of running from one space to another space to try and facilitate lots of people and to make my own, trying to do my own work in the middle. And just got really tired and I felt very despondent you know I felt very low which I don't normally feel very low yeah I felt kind of lost and then I went to a a talk in Dunleary Library um beautiful uh the Lexicon Library out in Dunleary and uh, I'm I'm a northsider so I had to travel but um (laughs) anyway um there was a writer talking about um about his experience of teaching creative writing and um, his name will come back to me in a minute. But he was saying that in his class, and he teaches in Syracuse University in New York, and he said that in his class he loves seeing older students because what they bring with them is a wealth of experience about life and a perspective that isn't available to younger students, especially in a subject like creative writing. And I listened to him talk, and I thought... I want to go to Syracuse and be a student of his. And then I went home and I thought, okay, you have to feed your 15-year-old and you have to see your mother and you have to stay here and pay the mortgage, blah, blah. You can't go to Syracuse. What can you do? And then I I went onto the Trinity website and I saw that they had a creative writing course in the Oscar Wilde Centre. So I just wrote to them and I said, I left school. I didn't... I wasn't allowed into the honours English class in school I was hopelessly um, weak academic my academic life and they were so because my overall results were so low I wasn't allowed into the streams that did higher English yeah. so I had to do you know Anyway, which is incredible. And I, I, I think it's you just know, I know I, just I know mad, you're going like, to make another point, but I, I, I yeah. just think that is just mad about our system yeah. um, that someone who can write so amazingly well as you uh, as you can. I, I mean, really, your, your way with words, your your ability to um, draw people in and to create people and to create atmosphere is incredible. And to think that in our schools, that well it's incredible in two ways um number one that nobody could see that to nurture it um and number two that you were so resilient that you didn't let what the teacher said to you in school stick mm. that i'm i'm no good at english i can't do english it's not my thing i'm mm. no good at english you actually you're you were able to achieve your own mm. potential but what breaks my heart is not everybody has that resilience, resilience yeah i mean i was belligerently resilient and I, I, i'm you know i'm not but i remember um on the day of the leaving cert i don't know you know there was the blue paper for pass yes, and, and the pink and the pink one for honors and it 
the invigilator who didn't know us from the back of the bus said, hands up the, for the honours paper. So I just put my hand up. Did and you I took really? One, yeah. And it was the only honour I got in my leaving Oh search. my God, that's incredible. And you hadn't even been oh, in the class no, studying for class, it. No, I know I got it on the essay, but you know, I've got to see. But I mean, man, it really oh, wow. meant a lot to me. But they were, there was, you know, I was in trouble. Um, I was in trouble for doing that. But anyway, look, neither here, that's neither here nor there. The, 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 what happened was I wrote to Trinity and I said, look, I don't have, I don't think I actually passed my leaving. I, I never, haven't been in college, but, you know, this is, I work as a, you know, columnist and playwright and stuff. And um, I'm just wondering, can I come, could I do the creative writing course and or could I come in and do English on any level and they wrote back and said you can come straight in and do the masters it's fantastic so they were really really kind to me so I had a year and the mad thing was that Mary my mother was ill you know and um I was supposed to be starting college in September Mm -hmm. and it was August and she was alive but barely alive and I had a frozen shoulder you know just stress and I just thought right I was going to pick up the phone to these people and say thank you very much for the offer of the masters but I actually can't do it there's just too much going on in my life right now and I'm not able to do it and then she died right and like she just one minute she's alive and the next one she's dead which is kind of what happened I know but it, 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 it it's funny when that it, it when, just, when it comes to fine. that it's like she's gone yeah yeah and you know I had I have had I have dealt with the fallout of her loss over the last two years it's hit me in ways that were really unexpected because we didn't have a straightforward kind of relationship, but but at that time, she was gone. And, you know, my husband had taken um, early retirement from the Irish Times where he worked. Um, and suddenly, I, and, and then my eldest son said, actually, I want to go and live in London for a while. And then there was just my youngest son there, and he was in school. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I can... I can I, do this. I can get on a train in the morning and I don't have to think about anybody yeah. else. And I don't remember the last time that happened to me. I, I, I you know, I, I think that's, I think that's a, a woman's thing. I mean, I, I just, and, and, and sorry if this is in any way offensive to any men listening, because um, I have entirely all men in my life, wonderful yeah, me men, too. my yeah. husband and two sons. But I think it's the because what you say resonate with me. And so I'm sure it resonates with tons of, of, of women is that always, always putting our kids and our obligations first. first. Yeah. Um, and I remember a few years ago and, and, and that's not good because I certainly know through certain stages um, for me over parenting where I mm. now this sounds awful to say but it's honest and truthful I resented my kids I never mm. not loved them I never mm. not and, and, and that wasn't about them that was mm. really probably more about me that I didn't realise mm. that actually in order to be and I remember reading an article um, that said you know uh, if you don't put yourself first as a mother you're failing your children and and, it, and I remember a friend of mine saying to me that sometimes she would she would be hungry it might be you know meal time and she would be hungry and then she'd feed her children and then she wouldn't be hungry anymore mm-hmm. and I think that's a really interesting physicalization of that you know because I know that feeling you know you're cooking you know it's dinner time you know people are and you think and then you suddenly realise, my God, 
I haven't eaten. You know, mm-hmm. when your children are smaller, you know, you've been picking spaghetti up off the floor or whatever. And then, you know, by the time it gets to you, you go, oh, man, I can just, you know. But you, or you haven't spoken to anybody. You haven't anybody, spoken to yeah, an right. adult. I mean, I yeah. used to, um, gosh, and, and it's kind of what you're saying there, the feeling low. And, and that's why I kind of sort of said lost in mm. a way to you when, when you were talking, because I do think in some way, you lose yourself, you become a mother and, and you become a wife and, and then somehow you, you do lose yourself mm. and, and you kind of there's there can be a sense that and I, I feel I have to kind of preface by saying I absolutely loved my kids mm. and loved mm. bringing them up sure. and, and loved kind of putting them there. But I do remember um, we had I can still see the chair. We don't have it anymore. I had a blue armchair beside the window that looked out the back garden. And I used to sit there when the kids were playing. You'd have lots of play dates and yeah, everything. Yeah. And I would just sit and look out the garden. And yeah. just, I, I don't even know what I thought, but just that. Yeah. It was almost even, and, and I don't think I articulated it as, is this it? But it it was almost, where am I? Or, or yeah. I don't know. And I mean, I would have only been, I had my kids very early. So I'm thinking I was only in my early 30s thinking yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I remember, and I can still say that now, I think for me, because I had my kids early and, and, you know, got married much younger than my friends. Yeah. And I had that thing of seeing them still doing stuff. Yeah. Um, that uh, m- turning 30 was probably harder for me than turning 40. Because mm. I was kind of coming out the other side a little bit and I had mm. actually given up my day job uh, to actually pursue a career in acting at that point. Um, mm. So I was kind mm. of already starting to reclaim a little bit um, of myself. But I think you can get lost. And, and I think it's uh, I'd love people listening here that maybe are still in the midst of that to, to kind of realize that uh, actually life does get better with each yeah. decade and 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 it, it's not downhill. I would I had a red chair beside my Right. <laughs> my kids would run out and there was a communal green behind our right. house you know and they'd all the kids would be out there playing and I'd sit in the red chair and think what what are you going to do what are you going to do mm. come on come on come on come on man. what are you going to do what are you going to do my friend doesn't have that mm. she has she's working full time she's paying crash fees she's paying rent she's sitting on the M50 you know what I mean and mm. so you know there are many we, we experience motherhood in many different ways mm. I think I think having children was the, the toughest challenge for me it was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was much harder than writing books. Mm. My God, Jesus. No, sorry. Jeepers. It's whatever. okay. It's okay. It's right. podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, it was really, that was the really, and I didn't think it was going to be as hard as it was, but it was really hard. Yeah, it, 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 it is quite challenging. And and actually, that's something that, that I've said in terms, I don't know about you, um, when I went to university, and I kind of went to university by accident, actually, really, I had... Um, I used to act in a soap and, and my part yeah. came to an end and um, I just, Ireland's very small when it comes to acting and, and it was quite a yeah. high profile part yeah. and um, you know the kind of casting agent said look it's going to be a little while before you get anything and I thought yeah. I might do a night course I'm not very good at doing nothing, in fact that's the hardest thing yeah. I think about being an actor um, oh, is doing nothing, yeah. is, is not working, yeah. the working is fantastic yeah. uh, and I said no I have to do something and I thought I'd do a night course and I applied to do a night course um, and the day I rang uh, I knew nothing about CAO or deadlines or anything yeah. like that and I had rung apparently the day after the 
applications had closed. Um, anyway, long story short, uh, apparently matures were allowed to apply later and I rang about an eye course and they said, well, our mature applications for our psychology day course um, are still open. And I applied and I got in and I thought, wow. well, it was 13 hours, um, 13 hours a week. I thought I can still act. I can still yeah. do whatever. But I just then loved the, oh, my God. Did you love it? Oh, I, I, do you know what I drove? Did you go to Trinity? I No, I actually went. Trinity was a four year course and they, they I'd missed their deadline completely. Yeah. So I did three years in Maynooth and then I got a scholarship to do my PhD in Trinity. So oh, I did my wow. PhD. PhD in Trinity um, but um, the undergrad oh my god I had the books I had them all read before I yeah, the, the, yeah. and I'm, I mean I drove the other students insane and actually afterwards some of the lecturers said to me we used to be terrified <laughs> going into lectures with you because yeah. we're asking questions that they didn't and it's only yeah, that's brilliant though but that's fantastic it was just yeah, hunger yeah, yeah. it was yeah. no, I enjoyed my undergrad much more than I enjoyed my PhD PhD is very very lonely yeah and yeah, you're yeah. on your own but I just and, and yeah. you're the one who's discovering the information which is kind of nice yeah. in a way but I still want I'm still hungry for knowledge I, yeah. I that's what I loved about psychology was just reading and reading and taking and was information it random in. that you did psychology if, if they'd said look our applications are open for you know no so I, w- I was ringing about a course in psychology so actually and a lot of people said that to me you're leaving because what a big jump going from acting to psychology and I went no it's the exact same it's, I, I was I'm just, say it's entirely linked yeah and I which I'm, I'm sure it's very much what drives you based on what I've read from you is Mm. you're interested in the human condition yeah absolutely I've just always been interested in that my dad used to have some big books on the shelf and they were around things like um I can see you know uh you know genetics the the men what is his name Mendel did the p um genetics you know uh discovered how we get eye color and um but it was also this book was kind of a mixture of science and anthropology and you know how how we came from you know the apes or whatever yeah. and I used to yeah. pour over that as a yeah. child and thought it was yeah. fascinating yeah. so for me that's what psychology was about was just yeah. understanding the the, the yeah. human condition um, and uh, and as an actor it, that's exactly what you do yeah. and I was an actor for years yeah. because you know you didn't need any qualifications to be an actor basically you know look and yeah you know whatever but um, but it, it it was just about going into in training yourself to think in a different way being and being somebody being else. somebody else yeah i literally i often wondered else, and yeah. i'm curious now to ask that because it was again going through and 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 you know reading yeah, yeah. your um your stuff i mean you're again as well this is what i love about women that i come across is that you can't it's and, and i'm sure you get this you know when people say what are you and you might say you know if you're interviewing mm-hmm. someone they might say oh i'm a cardiologist or i'm a this when you come across women it's like you and kind of saying you know you're a writer you were an actor you're a playwright you're an author do you know do you oh, know what i mean course, like women yeah. have so yeah. many we but so much of that is, is just a practical you know is come back to that thing of being you know you have well, two sons as well and you know Childcare. I don't know why I didn't think of it really, but you know, I mean, it wasn't maybe it wasn't an option financially, and they went to kind of crash in the morning for a bit, and I tried to write, and then they wouldn't want to go, and then I'd be oh, anyway, look, you know, so you buttoned together some kind of career, mm-hmm. you know, and for me, I became an actor, um, just about managed to kind of keep my head above water as an actor, but by the time I got to my thirties, it was it was really difficult. And we had a, a group of us um, had come together and created our own theatre company. 
And some of those people, like Owen Rowe, who's, you know, mm-hmm. really our, probably our country's best actor now. Is, Owen was one of them, was one of those people, Michelle Forbes, who's a novelist um, and an actor who's married to Owen. This. Anyway, there were a bunch of us um, and we created our own work because there was no work and it was the 1980s in Dublin and everybody was gone and the city was practically empty and there was some space in Denham Project for, you know, for content. So we wrote our own work, we choreographed our own work, we we designed our own work, we, we you know, we wrote our own music, we put our wow. put our work on um, and that work developed then and we brought it and we started working with Dermot Bulger, the writer Dermot Bulger and we did an adaptation of Queen of Arthur Lyra and we brought that play to Edinburgh. We won in Edinburgh first. Wow. French first, we went down to London. We were playing in London. You know, basically, we kind of, we kind of insisted on having, again, a voice, insisted on having some kind of response and, you know, we made our work. But that dries up, mm-hmm. you know, and I was very lucky. I had work in the Abbey and the Especially well, in the you, Peacock. You also did uh, TV. I, I, I did TV. I did quite you were a bit up, TV. upwardly yeah. mobile. I, oh I man, I know Pamela. Oh my goodness! I it was only I hadn't connected, and it was only it popped Pamela up last night. It went. Brilliant. Oh my god! Yeah. Now yeah. I know. That was great. No, it was great. But it was, was great. It's drama. A, but it's the kind of thing. I mean, being an actor, as you know, you're kind of on your toes because you don't know what's going to happen. And there was some very interesting experimental working on the Peacock with Tom McIntyre, who died recently, the playwright and. Michael Harding, who's now a columnist with the Irish Times, who's a playwright as well then. And and I was very lucky to be involved at that time. Patrick Mason was the artistic director for a short period of time. And in that time, it was a very interesting fecund kind of period, especially in the Peacock. And I did that work. But again, that dried up. And it dried up because the artistic um, direction of the theatre changed. And, you know, all the time when you're an actor, you're other... Th- bigger movements are changing your world mm-hmm. all the time, you know, your working world. Then Don't I, you think yeah. also, sorry, just to cut across yeah. you there, just going back to that, because it's a long time since I was a, um, an actor, really, but that um, I, what used to bother me, um, and I was quite helpless, I love hearing that you had a group of people. At that point when yeah. I was acting, my kids yeah. were quite small, yeah. um, and yeah. my parents were meant to look after them initially so that I could pursue because mm-hmm. I had a full-time day job that I gave up to become an actor right, okay. and uh, which crazy. was a big jump yeah yeah I got a place in the Gaelic School of Acting uh, and but I couldn't they I, I, I had to turn it down because I couldn't afford to do it and they that's where Colin Farrell studied and yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I couldn't afford to do it and they said uh, they actually called me back and said we'd really love you in the Gaiety School of Acting so we'll let you pay by the month and I said Fantastic. that's fine but who's going to pay my mortgage yeah. And uh, that was a regret I had for a very long time that I should have just found a way to pay my mortgage. Instead, I just gave up work and tried to become an actor by myself. Oh, Whereas okay. had I gone to the Gaiety School of Acting, doors would have opened. Well, you would have well, you would have had a cohort. Yeah. And I think that this is the thing. I think that, that's the thing. You know, and I do think it's probably the only. No, I shouldn't say that. But it's one of the most important things about training, actor training, is that you have some kind of cohort. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, when I started... Um, there was no Gaiety School and there was no Lear or there was no, you know, any of them. But there was uh, the Oscar Theatre School, which was one yeah. of the weekends. And we used to call it the Oscar School of Motoring <laughs> because, you know, really, it was very random. But it was there that I met Owen and Michelle and, yeah. and Lynn and Bert and Paul and all these people who 
became my mates and we created our own world. So that was know? kind of your university. You well, see, it if was. I think about that, because it was. I, I, I kind of did time when you were yeah. talking earlier about not having that cohort of university. Yeah. I miss that and I never had that yeah, either. And, yeah. But I'm seeing that you actually did. Yeah. Um, you you created your own in a way. I never did that. And I do think yeah. that's something that I missed yeah. also, you know, that it's always felt sort of alone. Yeah. But that's just. Um, I think I think having those mates and we I don't know if you remember in the 80s, you know, as I was saying, it was very everyone skinned. But the government, um, we were if you're signing on, you got a kind of stipend. Um, it was like a. It's like a false scheme, you right. know. So we kind of set up our own theatre company ah. by kind of pooling our false scheme money. Wow. And we got some premises together and a little black box theatre up off Herbert Street. And, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, and, and again, create our own work. But if I look at the thread through all of that, through that early time of creating our own work, through the time of working in the Peacock with new writers, through to going to London and through to realising that that kind of period had finished. The thread that kept me going was writing because I was always either listening to writers talking about their work or working in some collaborative way around creating scripts and on working in an ensemble. Um, and when you and in rehearsal, you can really absorb so much and I was probably absorbing more about the kind of creation of theatre than I was about the, the performance. I was, I was very, very more. I was more. I was inter more interested in the play, really, than in the performance. You know, I mean, I loved being on stage, and sometimes, and then other times, I did. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Theatre was never my my it's driver. Tough. Yeah, I mean, I loved television um, yeah. and, and film because for me, the joy was in the creating, the discovery. You know, what is it that's making this person say this thing? Why are they yeah. behaving this way? Yeah. You know, yeah. and understanding. And, and for me, then the joy came from Oh, I've, I've got and, and getting lo being lost in it, being, you know, becoming that person yeah, and, yeah, you know, and, yeah. and, and putting that out there. And then it was right next. Yeah. I don't want to do that every night. Yeah, I've done that now. Give me another challenge. Oh, OK, OK. Do, yeah, do you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I didn't yeah, want to do it every yeah, night. Yeah, that, yeah. that was didn't yeah. really interest me. Yeah, and also yeah. it never inter and I did do theatre. It never interested me. You know, if people stood up and gave you a standing ovation, if I felt I was oh, crap. No, it's 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 uh, very, it was, you know, you self-regulate, but, you know, uh, yeah, I I hear you, but I think that theatre, it, it's a very interesting thing because it's the intensity 
you do enter the world, but the world doesn't repeat itself in the same way night after night. No, I, I yeah. And there is an exploration, and when you're part of an ensemble and you're in a play, in a big play or a big play or a small play, um, that world is very consuming, and the nuances um, change. You know, and so you have great performances, you've got crap mm. performances, you've got nights you feel good, nights you don't feel so good. But you, it, it's so absorbing. It's just so absorbing. And the world of it is very enclosed once you're in there, mm-hmm. in the rehearsal room and like on stage. It becomes like a family. And again, we're looking to, I think I was looking to create some kind of control, yeah, to be in an environment that there was some, and maybe the repetition felt like control, which right. was a interesting. Yeah, it was it was boundaried. There right. was a boundaried experience that you you were living a boundaried, you were inhabiting a boundaried kind of experience night after night, and that really interested me. Television, I got telly. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I was thrilled to get telly because it paid so much better than t- than theatre, <laughs> which didn't um, often pay yeah. sometimes. <laughs> and um, you know, and I did various bits of telly and over the years, but I and I enjoyed myself and had a great time and I think, but. It didn't feel the same, but my first son was born when I was doing Upwardly Mobile and I remember being, we did the first season and then we were given the green light for a second season. And meanwhile, I was pregnant. I realised I was pregnant. I was like, oh, I better, what am I going to do now? And so I said to them, oh, I'm pregnant, actually. Um, And my character, Pamela, I don't think she was supposed to ever have sex, let alone get <laughs> pregnant, you know. And um, so I said, I'm actually pregnant. And they went, OK, when's the baby due? And I knew that we were back in work at the end of August. So I said, oh, summer, 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 the summer. And they said, OK, fine, well, that's fine then, yeah. Anyway, Pete was born the 6th of August and we were in rehearsal, like we we're back two weeks later. And I remember walking down Wicklow Street in this big, huge purple jumpsuit. I was pregnant and I looked like a Teletubby and I couldn't see my own feet. I was so enormous. And and I saw the producer walking towards me and he hadn't seen me. And I tried to get my massive bulk inside a shop really fast before, <laughs> before he realised, God, there's Pamela, like a Michelin man. And so anyway, I went back to work, but they just stood me behind a chair. Right. For the for, for the second series, most of the second series, I'm standing behind a chair. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, that's funny. But it was, you know, but I didn't have like I was literally no he, maternity he was leave born, straight in. No maternity leave. Yeah, that was challenging. Yeah, and your yeah, first you, time, first time mother. Was oh, that first, your first, first time mother. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah, a yeah, huge yeah, challenge. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back a, a, a tiny bit Sorry. to creativity because I'm really interested in creativity from <clears throat> actually a brain perspective. You know where our creativity yeah. uh, comes from and. Um, I totally get that other people and 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 actually it's when we that's why why society and being social is um actually played a huge role in our evolution and in actually our, our frontal lobes and our brains becoming um bigger and and bigger and more complex you know because through that interaction so perhaps we started making tools and but if yeah. we're making them around fire um you know you're seeing someone what someone else is doing and then something sparks an idea and you know that's something that we know of yeah. um that happened and I, I think that kind of applies to to creativity and I'm a firm yeah. believer in that there's um 
no such thing as a bad idea. And if you're in a group, just throw out all ideas mm. because the worst idea in the world could spark the best. Yeah, yeah. And and that's where I think there should be freedom, you know, around yeah. uh, around ideas. But I'm also interested in because obviously you don't write, you know, your your articles or your books um, collaboratively. They're they're all entirely. Yeah. So that kind of creativity. Do you do you do you do you know? Have you have 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 you figured yourself where that comes from or or you know what your process is or you know is mm. there is there a process or or what moments do your ideas mm. come mm. to you in? um well i was saying i think the thing that kept, i think when i looked back you know and i was i don't know what i did very just when i started writing peter was born when i was 34 and I wrote a play really, really quickly while I was pregnant at that point and when I was doing Upperly Mobile because I figured that I suddenly knew, I really suddenly knew I wanted to be a writer. And I figured if I don't write something really, really fast before this baby is born, um, other stuff is going to come in here and it's going to it's going to absorb something that I know I have that right. is felt feels really intangible, but I'm aware of it. I was aware of having this kind of space of my own, even when I was working collaboratively with other people. Right. It was like having a room in my own head. Okay. So I felt that I thought, oh man, uh, my room is going to be invaded. Like my room wasn't going to be invaded by other people's productions or telework or whatever learning to but drive or whatever baby you know was. what I mean but I knew I knew instinctively that a baby was going to walk right into that room and start kicking it around right. and you know was that a room that you s- escaped into I think I have had that space since you were a child since I was a child because I had a very I had quite a chaotic uh, I mean chaotic it's relative isn't it I there were things in my childhood that were very difficult to manage and so I created a space to to be in, you know, and it, it wasn't like walking in and sitting down in the space and looking at, around the walls and stuff. But it was a sensation of privacy, mm-hmm. of having a space that was private, you know, and I knew that when I knew that when I had a baby, that that space was going to change. So I lashed out a play really fast, sent it to the Bush Theatre and got a letter back to say we're going to do this play wow. it was the first play wow. I've written and I was just but it was almost like I, I know this I don't mean this to sound arrogant but it was like I knew that that had to happen because yeah. I knew that I had to I knew that I had to somehow hook the next bit of my life Yeah, I, I knew that I had a very short time to, to throw the line out yeah. and I was going to have to be really accurate and I needed to make a firm decision about where that line was been thrown. Yeah. I needed I needed to make the right throw uh-huh. and I needed to make it in the right direction and I just whacked it out. Bush theater play thump wow. on. Got a really good literary agent over there and then went into labor. Wow. But it's like it's a again it's a kind of thing of needing to control things. Like I, you I, know. Yeah, no 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 and I, I and I get that and 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 there's two things I, I want to follow up on that in that number one and I would certainly have experience like that and I'm not saying that being pregnant was a crisis but it, it's yeah. a turning point it's totally. a change yeah, yeah. it's a, it's a you know whoa things are going to change and that makes those things so it's it's an impending birth similar 
to when somebody dies yeah. when or when you lose a job yeah. big things like or when you're considering oh will I get married those big things take you out of the moment and make you start to think about you know where am I going what what will what, what will that you you have that bigger picture thing um and I see them as very positive because they, you know, they do get you yeah, to, yeah, yeah. To, to focus on who you are. And I often wish, and it's an interesting thing in the human condition, that um, we don't do that. We coast along. We're half present. Yeah. And it's only when something desperate, you know, strikes us, yeah. that it jolts us into the present and, and makes us realize. Yeah. In a way, it's about f- facing your own mortality and realizing you've yeah. only got X amount of years. Yeah. What are you going to do with them? Yeah. Um, and I just wish somehow we could, as human beings, keep that focus, you know, yeah. keep that. Oh, my God, what am I going to do today? Instead of so yeah. many people, oh, my God, I've got to go get yeah, up today. And actually, you know what? Today is a day. It's, yeah. it's a day you have, you know, yeah. d- do something with it. So it's fab to hear that the second thing that I'm really interested in is that you were able to be so focused, so creative and obviously do a superb job really quickly. While you were pregnant, because frequently, I know for me, my brain went to mush yeah. when I was pregnant in to the extent of doing funny things, strange things like driving up the, you know, going, going through a red light thinking, oh, yeah, nah. now it's my turn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where that I wasn't making yeah. proper sense of the yeah. world, but you had a clarity. I had started, I, I had um, between between seasons of Upperly Mobile because my husband is a Londoner and at the time we weren't married and we were, you know, we were kind of a bit coming and going and stuff. But um, between seasons, I went over to London and I did a a course um, for a couple of weeks in the City Lit with Bernard Copps, who's a playwright, um, an elderly playwright who was a colleague of Wesco and stuff and he was a very fantastic kind of teacher, mentor. And um, I had begun a play I had begun a play, so I had ideas, I had thought about structure, but also, you know, it wasn't that difficult because I was really writing very autobiographically. So I I just, so I had the bones of a play there when I was pregnant, but I just made myself focus. Put it down. And put it down. So would you say it had been marinating in your head for a very long time? Forever. 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 From from the time I opened my eyes and started looking around me. Yeah. So so for me, just kind of pinning that back a bit. What's what's interesting is there's an uh, your 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 brain your brain cells communicate with each other uh, through electrical and chemical signals, and so it's all electrical activity in your brain. You've 86 billion neurons and trillions of connections between them. And, uh, you know, depending on, on, on what activity you're engaged in, you know, most of them are working kind of all the time, but different yeah. areas are responsible for, for different things. But there's a really interesting phenomenon whereby um, if you go into a relaxed state where you're not actively engaged in something, right? Yeah. Call it daydreaming, whatever. But just perhaps when you're sitting in your red chair, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, just sort of just being, you know, not... Yeah. Um, not actively thinking what are we going to have for dinner or not actively engaged in something. Some areas of the brain become more active than other areas than when we're actually actively engaged. And it's a network across the brain, right? It's a network of activity and particular activity comes in and it's called scientifically the um, default mode network. And it just happens during that period of relaxation. And that, uh, we think, is actually where creativity, insight 
mm. and ideas lie. And what it is, is your brain doing its own thing. It's connecting mm. all the dots, so kind of connecting everything together. And it's mm. I call it marinating, actually. Um, and and yeah. I kind of say to people, look, you know, um, I actually gave a talk recently to a bunch of architects um, about uh, about brain health. And I was, you know, kind of always make my talks focused on what, what the person yeah, is yeah. working on. And, you know, architecture is a very demanding profession, lots of deadlines, timelines and lots of creativity required. And I was just saying to them, instead of always forcing, mm. f- trying to force the the idea that, you mm. know, oh, I need to be creative, I need to figure this out, I need to do that out, mm. is that's just our conscious brain trying to figure something mm. out. If you actually trust your brain and say, I have 30 years of knowledge in there. Yeah. I'm going to feed in, actually, you know what? These are the issues, problems that I need to figure out for this building. Leaving it to you, going to take time out to relax, chill. I'm going to sleep. The same, something very similar happens when we sleep. Yeah. During REM sleep, that dream sleep yeah. is new information being connected with all your previous knowledge and experience. So that's why you kind of get those odd dreams sometimes yeah. of something happening uh, that happened today mixed in with yeah. something from yeah. your childhood. It's yeah. your new memories are consolidated sort of earlier in the evening in sleep, in non REM yeah. sleep. And then <laughs> when you have more REM sleep, it's integrated with all your, which is why you can sometimes wake in the morning with the solution so yeah. sleep and actually taking time out are critical kind of to creativity yeah. and that's kind of what I said to you you, you know in that's those really moments you were yeah. throughout your life just letting that stuff was just marinating yeah. your brain was creating it so yeah. actually what you just needed to do was then just get to that physical point of get Listen, this out of here um, and, and onto Enright, the page you know and then yes. right who's you know just fantastic writer and and um she said to me a couple of years ago just turn up all right. you need to do is turn up, just turn up to the page. Yeah, really, just just. But you know, it's so difficult mm. sometimes for people to turn up, to whatever it is. You know, just to allow, just to allow themselves the self belief that what they have to say or draw or make matters. Yeah, in some way. Yeah, and I, I think as well what I'm learning as a novice writer now um, is that. Um, the the just turn up is super important, and I th- mm. sit there and sometimes I get nothing, you yeah, know. But, but I, you're there, I, I do research, but also what I've d- decided to do because I have a you know a really short deadline is no, I have to write, I have to write an mm. X number every day, and I'm kind of doing that. And I, when I wrote my first book, I perfected every single paragraph before I could move mm. to the next. Mm. I had a, b- a bit more time to write it. Um, now I'm learning no. And, and what I'm doing this time is I'm getting something down on the page. Mm. Um, it has the core of what I need yeah. to say, but it's... Could be sloppy. Y- yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just there. It's information. It's not a necessarily yeah. a nice read. Sometimes it comes out that way. But what I do is I'm doing that and then I'm moving on and moving on. But actually what's happening is my brain has that problem in its head of I, what, what was wrong with that paragraph or, or you yeah. know. So then I kind of, it might be three days later I start and I kind of go, you know what? And I go back to that yeah. bit and something happens yeah. where I can go, gosh, yeah. that's really clunky. Here's how I can just yeah. say it. And it works. Yeah. So... I don't think, had I not written the really awful stuff 
my brain wouldn't have the information to know what to fix to play around with to play around with so I do think that's you know and you hear it pretty much from every single wonderful author that you admire is just you gotta write every day you gotta be there you gotta be there you just gotta you really have to be there and it's harder than it it's harder than it seems yeah and it's very easy to procrastinate if you take anything away from this episode, let it be that, well, and I'm stealing Hillary's words here, it's never too late to silence the childhood voices of discouragement. Thank you so much for tuning in to the first ever episode of Superbrain. For regular updates and bonus material, follow Superbrain podcast on Instagram and at Sabina underscore Brennan on Twitter. Subscribe to Superbrain on Apple, Spotify, Google, Acast or wherever you consume your podcasts. And remember, if you loved it, rate it, review it, share it. My name is Sabina Brennan and you've been listening to Superbrain, the podcast for everyone with a brain. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.